that, um, that focus in John chapter 1 this morning. So if you would, turn or scroll um, your way to John chapter 1 or click however you're going to get there. The title of the sermon this morning is Prepared to be a Witness. Prepared to be a Witness. And our text is John 1, verses 6 and 8. 6 through 8, pardon me. 6 through 8. And verses 19 through 29. So we're going to kind of take a, a jump between a couple verses to another section. Uh, again, following the readings from the, the Book of Common Prayer. And the assertion for the sermon this morning, the big point, the big idea uh, that we're going to try to continue to focus on throughout our time in, in, in studying John 1 is this. Preparing for Christmas requires bearing witness to the advent of Jesus Christ, the true light of the world. Let's pray together. Kind and gracious Father, we take time out of our schedules, our routines, to be a part of your church. And as Paul prayed this morning, I ask that all that we do and say and think and feel in this time would Prepare us for living for your glory, not only here while we're together, but every day of the week. And as we go through this Christmas season, as we go through John 1 this morning in preparation for the Christmas season, I ask that your word and your spirit would move among us and prepare us to be a witness. That we would focus on the true light, your son Jesus, in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So follow along as I read uh, our verses this morning from John 1, beginning of verse 6, going through verse 8, and then jumping down to verse 19. So John 1, 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. You know, one of the most common questions we receive during the holiday season sounds a little bit like this. Are you ready for Christmas? Right? I mean, we all get those kinds of questions. Um, Either it's that specific question or another one that's similarly positioned to uncover a variety of things, right? What shopping you have left, uh, what you want for Christmas, what meals you plan to fix, uh, your travel schedule, whether you'll be going someplace, whether someone will be coming to you, 
basically, it's a question that's asking about any piece of information you're willing to share about your Christmas plans. So it seems to me that we instinctively and conversationally uh, understand that Christmas time is almost a universal time of preparation, right? Prepare your Christmas list, prepare your house for guests, prepare yourself for Christmas shopping or holiday travel, in my case, especially Atlanta, which might be the worst city on planet Earth to drive through. Um, nothing against the city, just against the traffic. Any amens? Any amens? Amen. Thank you, thank you. Um, you know, we might prepare, prepare meals for family or friends or our community. Uh, we're preparing Christmas cookies. We did that this week at our house, a personal favorite. And the list, you know, we could just keep listing things, right? Uh, no matter who you are, though, this kind of draws to our attention, we're all doing something to prepare for this season. So with these ideas and this thought of preparation in our mind, our text today in John's Gospel asks us the same general question about uh, our lives and our Christmas time. Are you prepared for this season, for the Advent season, for Christmas time? In fact, we're offered a group of interconnected question and questions and answers, a conversation we'll see between John and a group of people, which provide us with both the questions asked of us and a challenge about what answers we think we might give to these questions. Here, God's word challenges the answers we give and provides a pictures of the answers we must give if we seek to honor God, as again, as Paul pointed out, and our confession pointed out, honoring God in thought, word, and deed. So in the spirit of this passage and all other Christmas time interrogations, really, we're going to ask three questions this morning, three questions, and offer three corresponding challenges or exhortations in order to examine how we are preparing for Christmas time, if we're prepared to be a witness. Organizationally, the first three verses of our passage kind of function as both a prologue and a summary of how the rest of the passage will be, will be studied. With each question and exhortation giving, we will, given, we'll have a verse from the first section, verses 6 through 8, and a corresponding section in verses 19 through 28. In this way, we're going to be able to see the unity and coherence of these two groups, this grouping of passages that many people um, I believe is the, the original beginning of the Gospel of John. So it will, it will make sense why these are these verses uh, connected together in, in the Book of Common Prayer and in our, our reading this morning. And indeed, the tensions in this passage reveal the tensions in our own lives. And the light that we see here that's referenced is the light that sheds light upon all the corners of our lives as well. So with the Holy Spirit's guidance in our, in our text this morning... We will have our eyes opened, I pray, to the joy of this Christmas season. Well, there are many questions that uh, we might think are the best place to start, right? So what's the first question we're going to be asked this morning? Um, in our preparedness to be a witness, God's word cuts through any assumptions we might have and asks and actually one of the deepest questions we all ask of ourselves, one of the first questions we ask. Uh, in many ways, it's a question of self-identity. And it's simply this, who are you? Who are you? So that's our first question this morning, a question of self-identity. Who are you? We find this question introduced in verse 6 and explained in 
in verses 19 through 21. So the first question John the Baptist receives from this conversation, the, the players in this story are, are John the Baptist and this group of people coming to question him out in the wilderness when he's doing his ministry. This first question, who are you, encapsulates really the deepest inquiry we all make as human beings, a question of self-identity. Who are you? Uh, and, you know, it wouldn't be an understatement for me to point out how fundamental this question is to the Christmas time season, not only in this passage, not only in the lives of these characters, but in every moment of our existence. Ultimately, this question that we're asked has a corresponding exhortation. This question of who are you, John's testimony challenges us to find our identity, to root our identity in Christ root our identity in Christ. So the text this morning in verse 6, read it again with me here. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The introduction to John in verse 6 and John's response to the Jews' questions in verses 19 through 21 give us some critical clues about how we we all should answer this question of self-identity. John's witness to the world in many ways defines who he is. And in fact, he's not some small, tiny, little side player in the narrative of this Christmas story. He seems like a pretty important character in the story and preparation for the advent of Jesus Christ. And how does the text describe him? In verse 6, it describes him this way. Sent from God. Sent from God. In many ways, this language ought to remind us of Old Testament prophetic language, right? Um, Prophets being sent from God to speak a word to the people. Uh, This language, in fact, puts John in the same category as Moses, who was sent by God, we read in Exodus 3. Isaiah and Jeremiah, prophets who are described as sent by God. And even Jesus himself, who is sent by the Father, revealed later in John chapter 3 and verse 17. So being sent by God represents a critical theme that in fact is repeated throughout John, but here in this passage, ties John's identity uh, within this, this stream of thought of being sent by God. And it makes us, it helps us understand his point, why he has the authority to answer the questions the Jews are going to ask of him later in the passage. Connecting this commissioning statement in verse 6, uh, we jump down to verses 19 through 20 and 21 where we see what exactly John is sent from God to do and declare. Uh, In fact, verse 19 begins, and this is the testimony of John. Verse 20 says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So there's a repeated emphasis here in these verses on John's witness as we read of his testimony and confession, confessed and did not deny. God's word here emphasizes this part of John's role and John's faithfulness, faithfulness to it by using these terms, these similar terms in quick succession. In this, we see John's commitment to fulfilling God's purposes for his existence. John understood his sentness, really a kind of contingency on something and someone outside of himself for his identity. John did not allow this privilege, because remember, he's a critical player in this narrative. He didn't allow this privilege, this lineage of sentness, to go to his head, as it were. Uh, It didn't become a source of personal pride. It didn't become a source of independent self-identity. He understood 
he was dependent on a testimony on something outside himself. It's not simply about John's sentness alone. It's about who he was sent to testify of. A critical point in understanding the, the ongoing and unfolding conversation in the next several verses. So again, in verses 19 through 21, we read this conversation, the beginning of this conversation between John and a group of people simply identified in the ESV here as priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Suffice to say, these folks were emissaries of the most influential Jewish leaders, likely Sadducees and Pharisees. And in fact, verse 24 confirms, at least partially, they were sent by the Pharisees in the most influential Jewish city, Jerusalem. So they are important people from an important, people from an important place. So it's kind of the, the, the picture that we're trying to get here in this passage. They're a, a powerful set of people that are coming to question John. Clearly, uh, in verse 19, we find, out they're, we find out what they're after. They're not really hiding their agenda. They ask, who are you? And in fact, that's where we get our first question this morning, specifically from the text here. Who are you? They want to know if John is the Messiah, a question that reflects the messianic expectation, really, of this whole period of history, of Jewish history. Yet, there is a multifaceted meaning here in both the question and the answer. Who are you? Does represent this messianic inquiry that makes sense in this period of history. But it also kind of means, who do you think you are? And even a genuine sense of verification. Who are you really? I mean, really, John, who are you? And I love how John actually sees through this, this simple question. Oh, we're just asking this really straightforward question, John. Who are you? But John sees right through it. And he sees actually the, crest, the, the real question underneath it all. And he openly reveals he's not the Christ. No, I'm, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the anointed one, the Messiah. So the Jews then ask a follow -up, some follow-up questions. Okay, you're not the Christ. Well, uh, let's ask some other questions. Secondly, they ask, are you Elijah? What then? Are you Elijah? Verse 21 says. Uh, they also ask, what are you? Are, are you the prophet? Rather than getting the picture then, clearly these follow-up questions kind of reveal to us the Jews don't get what's going on here. And we'll, actually that becomes a lot clearer as the passage progresses. Um, but in fact, these questions that they're ask, asking also should draw our attention to Old Testament prophetic witness, um, specifically predictions in Zechariah and Deuteronomy of a forerunner who prepares the way for the Messiah. And in response to these questions, John simply denies that he has such an important or deserving um, place or an over-exaggerated place in this story. Interestingly as well, John doesn't seem to recognize the full significance of his own ministry. In fact, um, because when the, when the Jews ask, are you Elijah, they're asking if he's this forerunner figure. Uh, and strangely, John says no, but then we'll read in the next passage, he quotes something from Isaiah that is actually part of this Elijah witness that he's supposed to fulfill. And in fact, Jesus himself, in other uh, synoptic gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark, confirms, Jesus himself confirms that John the Baptist is the forerunner. He is the Elijah-like figure promised in the prophets. So maybe, maybe it raises a little bit of attention. It's best resolved in this way. Uh, John just doesn't want to be 
the point. He's not the central figure of what's about to happen. He's not the, the key player. He's not what everybody's waiting for necessarily, independently. He's contingent. He is a sent one. His life only gains importance based upon the one he is declaring that comes after him. He simply refuses to make the conversation, the time, this period of history about himself. And he deflects it all away from himself. John's conversation here, and this and is this, the beginning parts of his conversation, draws our attention to just how we ought to respond to questions of self-identity. Questions we often ask ourselves, questions we are asked by others. This who are you? How do you define yourself? And eventually, you know, the ultimate question that we're all asked as we stand before God. And John's testimony, thankfully, we're not left with just the question, we're given an example, an exhortation. And in John's testimony, to do a simple yet very, very difficult thing, a thing we cannot do on our own, we need God's help to do, and that is root your identity in Christ. So our first question this morning has been a simple one, a question of self-identity. Who are you? And we have this simple exhortation from John's testimony, root your identity in Christ. Who or what is your frame of reference when others seek to know you? In some ways, that's, that's also a question that, that teases in on this question of identity, self-identity. Are you worried? Well, I think it's probably true. We are all worried how others perceived us. Maybe, maybe I won't ask the question, I'll just make the statement. We're all worried about how others see us. We are. But how much do you worry your life confirms or denies the gospel of Jesus Christ? How much does that keep you up at night? Does that cause you to feel this ball of tension in your heart and in your gut when you're around other people? Because you know, as, as God's children, we are gospel people with gospel stories. That's the central feature of who we are. Do we make that the story of our lives? What Jesus has done, Jesus himself? Do your conversations or your relationships, do they ever move beyond everyday conversations where you are able to successfully draw people's attention to Christ? And that's a difficult thing to do. It's a question we all ask ourselves. I ask of myself, you know, could I have done something differently in this conversation to make Christ central to all of this. And you know, we don't want to spiritualize everything we're doing, sure. Uh, we can have normal conversations, human conversations, but at some point, I think we all know when we just don't take that turn and root our identity in, in who Christ is. And whether we like it or not, much like John, we don't really fully comprehend our place in this life. We can understand pieces of it, but we must trust what God has revealed about our lives, that we must exist for his glory, not our own. We must pursue his kingdom, not our own, and trust that in this declaration by God, it makes sense of our lives. I guess in many ways, though, that asks a deeper question. Um, are you even God's child? Some of these questions I've been asking make that kind of assumed that all of us here have made that confession, that first confession, that Jesus is Lord, 
admitting our own sinfulness and looking to Christ for salvation. Because you see, if you haven't done that, if you aren't redeemed, then um, you can't make your story a gospel story. Your story is still about yourself. Your identity is still about yourself. So I challenge you to, to reflect. If you, if you have questions on that, reflect on whether your identity is bound up in Christ and what he has done or in yourself. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and root your identity in him. When we are asked who we are, when you're asked who you are, how do you answer? In this passage, the Jews asked John to answer a question. In fact, they should have been asking themselves first. Sadly, this is in fact an error we repeat, right? Uh, In response to this question, we receive a simple exhortation. Root your identity in Christ. To know ourselves truly, we must know Christ personally. First question this morning, question of self-identity. Who are you? We are challenged to root our identity in Christ. The second question this morning, question number two, is a question of self-declaration. What do you say about yourself? We find this question in verse 22 of our text this morning. And the second question challenges us to proclaim the gracious story of the gospel. The first question of self-identity, the second question of self-declaration. What do you say about yourself? Find this question uh, explained and asked in verse 7 and in verses 22 and 23. Verse 7 says this, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Jumping down to verse 22. So what does, what does John do then? So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Um, so I mentioned Christmas conversations. Are you ready for Christmas? Part of uh, a Christmas time is often catching up, right? So, you know, we may see family we haven't seen for a while. Uh, we may see friends. We visit with others that, that maybe this is the only time of year we cross paths. Uh, many of our conversations are all about this time of catching up, trying to encapsulate everything that's happened from the last time we were with these people. Uh, we may try to make our lives seem really cool or interesting or accomplished. Um, yes, I'm sure we all kind of do that a little bit, if we're honest. Some of us succeed at this. Others, eh, maybe we're not so good at that. We need a little more practice. Uh, Whatever your approach, though, to catching up with people in this season of life, our text today, John 1, challenges us to reevaluate, to pause, and question what we say about ourselves. Not simply who we are, our first question this morning, but what we say about ourselves. How do you answer questions about your life your purpose, your goals. After all, what we say about ourselves reveals a great deal, in many ways, the heart of what we imagine and perceive as the most significant part of our life. So what do you say about yourself? Our second question. Returning to the passage this morning, John the Apostle records a significant statement regarding not simply who John John the Baptist is, his identity is the sent one, we see in verse 6, but what John is appointed to accomplish in God's sovereign plan for the world. We see two terms in verse 7, witness, bear witness, uh, closely related terms, uh, both semantically as well as we can read it in the English. That makes sense to us that those words are tied together. Um, 
So it, it again emphasizes John was sent to bear witness. And, and it says then a funny thing, to bear witness that all men might believe. Now history tells us, right, uh, we understand that not all men believe, so why does, why does this statement here? Why make this statement if it doesn't happen? Cutting through what would be kind of really vast and sweeping theological discussions, it seems that this verse is making one rather simple point. Again, um, and we've kind of hinted at this already, it's not about John. You see, the him that all might believe through him doesn't refer back to John, but in fact refers back to the light, the light. And we know who that is. It's not about John's message raising up all mankind to believe. It's about the witness of the light that brings faith and life to men. So I guess, again, this narrative really isn't about John then, huh? Sounds a bit like our lives, the story of our lives too, right? It's not about us. John the Baptist, this powerful, bit eccentric, popular in his own right figure, is sent for a single purpose, to bear witness Not about himself, but about the light. Who will draw, who, the light, will draw all types of men in saving faith, in redemptive mercy, and in grace. And in fact, this this, uh, distinction heightens our appreciation of what John says in verses 22 and 23, in the second set of series, series of questions we find. So jumping down to those verses, verses 22 and 23, We receive an explanation of the witness who bears witness. So they get these other questions going. You're not the the Messiah. Okay. You're not Elijah. Okay. You're not the prophet. Okay. Well, then who are you? What are you going to say about yourself? And what's interesting is John gets a chance to answer for himself beyond monosyllabic responses. And what does he do? What does he do? When given the chance to speak for himself, John doesn't speak his own words. He speaks God's words. He speaks scripture. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. A verse that falls in the midst of a larger promise for comfort and peace to God's people. Um, I'm going to read just a couple of those verses. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. To get, give you an idea of, of where this quote comes from. Isaiah 43 says this. A voice cries... And this should ring a bell because this is what John quotes. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Does that, does that remind you a bit of the context of even our passage from John 1? The word became flesh. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. What a beautiful connection. The word not simply comes from God's mouth. The word has come to God's people. The word took on flesh to dwell here bodily. John is saying, and the scriptures are confirming in stereo, 
We have Isaiah, we have John, we have the context of John 1. God speaks and his word has come. It's about him. It's about him. He has come. The light of the world is here. All that you've been waiting for is here. John's platform, this moment where he could answer for himself, what do you say about yourself? And he simply declares the gracious advent of the Messiah. And in fact, the second question God's word asks each of us, this question of self-declaration pierces us to the heart. What do we say about ourselves? And here John's response gives us insight, exhorts us, challenges us, gives us help. Proclaim the gracious story of the gospel. Proclaim the gracious story of the gospel. So what is your story? What do people know about your life? In many ways, uh, so I'm, I'm in the midst of asking, of interviewing for new jobs. One of the most frequent, it's probably the first question I always get asked, is essentially, tell us about yourself, Peter. It's like the worst, it's the worst question. I have such a terrible time answering that question. Uh, but in many ways, that kind of reveals Again, it's a similar question each one of us are asked all the time. What do we say about ourselves? Are we prepared to answer to others how we describe ourselves? What's important to us? What's significant to us? When this, in this season, when you catch people up on your life, who's going to be the central player in your story? Is it going to be what you've done or what hasn't happened, Maybe. What's gone wrong this year? And all of I, I, I'm not downplaying all that suffering. I'm not downplaying what God has done in people's lives. All I'm saying is there's a way for us to translate all of the bad things and all of the good things through the story of the gospel. And we need to, we all of us, me included, we all need to get better at doing that, making our lives about the gracious story of the gospel. Because if we do, we risk doing some dangerous things. We risk things becoming idols and our accomplishments or failures becoming our gospel. So how are you using the platform God's given you? We all have some influence. It's true, whether we like it or not. People are watching us. We have relationships. We have opportunities. How are you using that as a platform for the gospel? Are you building your own kingdom or are you building God's kingdom? And again, I'll, I'll say this, if, if you personally haven't received the grace of Christ in your life, if you haven't made the story of the gospel your story, I challenge you this morning to cry out to him and to make his mercy your own so that you can show mercy to others. And I challenge all of us, those of us who are God's children, to make that the rhythm of our Christmas season, that when we talk about ourselves, we make a point to make Christ the central figure of who and what we are. Proclaim the gracious story of the gospel because, you know, our existence as God's children is grace all the way down, whether we know it or not. It's grace all the way down. So we've had two questions already this morning. A question of self-identity. Who are you? We've had a second question, a question of self-proclamation. What do you say about yourself? And these questions exhort us first to root our identity in Christ, second to proclaim the gracious story of the gospel. But there's one more question, a final question, a question of self-worth. 
what are you doing? What are you doing? We find this in verses, verse 8 and verses 24 through 28. Answering questions of self-image and self-declaration are no more difficult than answering this question of self-worth. Because you see in verse 25, when the, these leaders who have run out of questions, they thought they had really good questions, I bet. Like they were ready with really good questions. Poor guys, they just weren't ready. Uh, they then come to this almost exacerbated question. Then, why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, why are you doing this? What are you doing? And these are difficult questions. Clearly, all the questions we've been asking this morning have been interwoven. But this question in particular, this question of self-worth, has been something that's been pushing in on my heart. Uh, you know, I just finished my PhD. Most of you know that. And when I have conversations with folks uh, about my life, they often when they find out I finished my PhD, the next question is, well, what, what are you doing next? And, you know, I don't mean to, uh, there's no shame on any of you because I think many of you have asked that question. No shame in that question. It's a very natural, caring even question. Uh, but it pushes in on my heart uh, something that I'm growing to understand more deeply every day. And it's this, what I do in many ways reveals who I am. And we shouldn't shy away from that. You know, that maybe that's a hard thing for us to fully appreciate, but it gives our, po- li- our life power when we understand God has given us a wonderful task to accomplish. And it challenges us to live our life in the, in the right way. For me, I've struggled to feel great about the answers I've been giving uh, because for me, I feel there's an obvious gap in the doings of my life, and so I'm tempted to think there's an obvious gap in the being of my life. And I, I tend to think I'm not alone in that. I tend to think that's, again, at, at varying levels, those kinds of questions pierce us in different ways. Questions about employment, uh, parenting style, marriages, uh, school, future present, uh, those kinds of questions about what we're doing tend to just hit us, hit us deeply. And this question here, what are you, what are you doing, is a question of self-identity for John. And verse 8, again, reminds us, thankfully, of the derivative nature of John's existence, and in many ways it serves as a reminder for us. We are dependent on God alone. He, John isn't the light. We aren't the Savior of men. It's Jesus, the Savior of men. He came to bear witness to the light. At first glance, we might see this limitation as kind of a knock on John. I know as human beings, we tend to think of our limits as weaknesses. But I think we need to remember that limiting is often a grace. There is a limiting reality to grace. God's commands, consider God's commands. God's God's commands limit us from doing particular things, but they free us. There is a grace in that to live the most fulfilling meaningful, enriched lives. The limiting of this isn't a knock on John, but that's not how the Jews position this distinction. When they find out who John is, okay, well, you're not the, you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. Well, what are you doing? And in many ways, like all good temptations toward depression and self-loathing, unfaithfulness even, the questions in this final, final section of our passage recast this limit as grace 
as a limit as flaw with John. So in verse 25, we come across this question, then why? Then why? The Jews ask this question because in some ways they're wondering why he's baptizing Jews. You know, the Jews understood the Gentiles were unclean pagans, so they needed the baptizing. But John was baptizing Jews and Gentiles. What? What are you doing, John? That doesn't make any sense. It was scandalous even for John to be doing this. But even more than that, they're beginning to then say, John, why, why have you done all this if you're not these important people? What good is this baptism you're doing if you're not the Messiah, you aren't Elijah, you aren't a prophet like Moses? You aren't, you aren't really that important, John. You're not any of these really important people, so what are you doing? I mean, you live here in the wilderness, you eat bugs, you wear animal skins, you're kind of crazy looking. Like, why are you, at the root of all that, why are you making all these sacrifices, John? Remember, John was in a priestly family. John was born to a priest. He could have had privilege, uh, at least socially, as a member of a priest's family. And John rejected all of that. He could have had comfort at some level, but John rejected that. So the Jews are saying, what are you doing, John? They are questioning the fundamental worth of who John the Baptist is because they're questioning what John is doing. If you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah and you're not Moses, man, you shouldn't even bother. If you're not an important person, you shouldn't make any of these sacrifices, John. Thankfully, though, we have verse 26. The the questioning doesn't end there. And John replies in a very cool way, a very fascinating, helpful, meaningful way. And the phrase that sticks out is this, among you stands one you do not know. In the face of what seems to be pretty intense questioning of who John is, what he's doing, John provides a simple, profound, helpful, comforting reply. John understands his baptism is with water. Okay, yeah, you guys are right, he says, essentially. He isn't confused about the small, insignificant reality of his life. However, that's not the real point, and that's not the real question here. It wasn't John who was missing the boat, who'd missed it, missed out on opportunities in life. It was the Jews. The one the Jews were looking for was right there among them. The one you're looking for is among you right now, John says. They didn't have to go far. They didn't have to go outside of their people group. They didn't have to go outside their comfort zone. They didn't have to go very, di- very far. It wasn't difficult in, in some ways, right? He was right there all along. John understood his future, his life, his present, his task here was all about Christ, the light of the world. John's humility radiates in the way he describes his unworthiness and the worthiness of this light who he then points toward. John was unworthy. We are unworthy. But he knew. We knew. We know. We can know the one who is worthy. You know, it's amazing how eerily similar all these questions have been, but these, this final question in particular um, can be we receive these questions of self-worth all the time from ourselves, from others. Um, and it's hard to answer them. It's very difficult to know how to answer them. And I challenge each one of us, I challenge you, I challenge me to answer as John did 
to be exhorted to do this thing when we are faced with questions of self-worth. Humbly live for God's glory. As Paul pointed out wonderfully this morning, and as I will point out again, when we live for God's glory, we live in the most meaningful, satisfying ways. It's the way we were intended to live. It's the way we flourish. So what is it then you live life for? You know, what do you do when you, when you think you don't have the best things in life? The biggest house, the newest car, the sexiest body, the coolest friends, the smartest brain, whatever it is for you. The most money, the best, uh, we could keep listing things. Why do you even bother then? Is that, is that what you feel? Why bother? Why bother? What helps you stay sane at a job that you don't like? What helps you in a marriage that's difficult? Relationships that are difficult? What helps you move through the day? Is it, have, you, have you resigned yourself to just give up? Do you question your goodness and value to, to God? Take heart, church family. Take heart. You are loved by Christ and God. Christ was sent as a symbol and representation and embodiment of God's love. Live for God's glory and make this story your own. During the holidays, uh, again, we're asked this simple question. Are you ready for Christmas? This morning, we've reviewed a series of questions, three questions that kind of tease around this question or ways of asking this question and are all interrelated. We've had a question of self-identity. Who are you? We've had a question of Self-declaration, what do you say about yourself? And we've had a question of self-worth. What are you doing? I challenge us all to the question of self-identity. Root your identity in Christ. To the question of self-declaration, proclaim the gracious advent of our Savior. And to the question of self-worth, humbly live for God's glory. Be prepared for Christmas by being prepared to be a witness to the advent of the light of the world, Jesus Christ. So, are you ready for Christmas? Let's pray together.